In the nearly four years since launching SSR, I've stumbled on a handful of what I might call new-to-me classics. The book, taking center stage on episode 173, definitely falls into this category. It's called Finding My Voice and was written by Marie Myung Ak Lee. It has a pretty interesting publishing history that we'll talk more about once we get into the episode. But for now, suffice it to say that the book originally hit shelves in 1992 and was reissued again this year. Its exploration of identity and racism and the immigrant experience is timeless. Its focus on hatred directed at Asian American people in particular is, unfortunately, all too relevant in 2021. The star of Finding My Voice is high school senior Ellen, who is pretty exhausted from trying to live up to the academic expectations of her immigrant parents, as well as the track record of her brainiac big sister Michelle. Ellen is really smart, but she also loves gymnastics and wants to have time to socialize before she graduates. And there's her budding relationship with Tomper, aka Tom, a popular kid at school who initially can't decide if he wants to date Ellen or a horrible cool girl from the gymnastics team. As if the basic stresses of high school aren't enough, Ellen also must contend with racist remarks and behavior from her classmates and teachers on a near constant basis. Finding My Voice opens up space to discuss so many subjects, many of which we touch on in this episode. My guests and I talk about everything from the immigrant experience and racism to popularity and people-pleasing. We consider the pros and cons of writing a book with a message or moral in mind and have a conversation about how pop culture has conditioned us to think about the quote, cool guy in a specific kind of way. You're going to love this one. Meet this week's guest. Jane Igaro was born in Nigeria and immigrated to Canada at the age of 12. She has a journalism degree from the University of Toronto and is the critically acclaimed author of Ties That Tether and The Sweetest Remedy. She writes about strong, audacious, beautifully flawed Nigerian women, much like the ones in her life. Her third novel, Worth Having, will be released in September of 2022. Follow Jane on Instagram at Jane underscore Ikaro and on Twitter at Victorious Jane. If you're not already, I would love to have you following the SSR podcast on social media as well. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. If you want even more SSR community, I would encourage you to check out SSR on Patreon. Patreon is a community of SSR fans who contribute a few dollars every month to the production of the show in exchange for lots of fun exclusive rewards. Those rewards, which include access to the SSR Discord channel, Patreon parties, book club meetings, newsletters, behind-the-scenes content, bonus episodes, video reading recaps, and more have really brought the Patreon family together. For example, we would love to have you join us for the first meeting of the SWR Shit We Read book club in 2022. We are reading So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix by Bethany C. Morrow, and I'm really looking forward to it. Plus, the contributions from patrons, starting at just $1 per month, really do help keep this indie podcast going strong. As we get into the holiday season and the new year, I would so appreciate you thinking about coming on board. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. The support of this community really means so much to me. You can also show a little extra support for SSR during this season of giving by leaving a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. These ratings help more people find the show, and the more the merrier. If you're looking for the perfect gift for the audiobook lovers in your life, or maybe for yourself, you should definitely check out Libro FM. When you shop with Libro FM, you're supporting independent bookstores, which I think always feels great. 
The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. That's right, we have a new code. Again, use code SSRPODCAST, not SSRPOD, to cash in on that deal. You can even gift a Libro.fm membership to your loved ones this holiday season. Speaking of the holiday season, I have a little bit of housekeeping to share with you before we get into this week's episode. This is the last book episode of 2021. Next week, I'll drop our third annual Listener Sewed bonus episode, and then the podcast will be taking a week off so I can rest and regroup for 2022. On January 4th, I'll be back with the first episode of the new year and of our fourth annual, Manuary. The hosts of the Overdue podcast join me to chat about the story of Dr. Doolittle, and it is not to be missed. In the meantime, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jane. Welcome to SSR. Thank you for having me. So listeners should know that we're both having like weird recording setups today. So if there's strange noises that you're not used to hearing, roll with us. It's a Friday afternoon. I have like contractors on the roof. I have a dog that's barking. Jane, I know you're in a closet. Like anything (laughs) could happen over the next hour. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me, Jane. I'm so excited to talk with you. I'm also so excited because you put a book on my radar that I actually was not familiar with. It's called Finding My Voice. It's by Marie Myung Oak Lee. Um, And I'd love for you to share a little bit with me about the role that this book maybe played in your life, your memories of it, and why you suggested it for today's episode. Well, I came across this book recently, and I was immediately captivated by the the synopsis so what it's about and I thought it was interesting I always I'm very fascinated about immigrants and their story and how children of immigrants live and the expectations so the book instantly drew me in and there was a romance subplot so I thought it would be very interesting to read and I really enjoyed it I did too so how does this compare to the kinds of books you liked to read when you were a kid like did you like to read romances did you like to read more of like a classic coming of age story how does this compared to those books that you liked as a kid? Well, I didn't read too much as a kid. I started reading, a, I think, a good amount when I was maybe like in grade eight. Mm-hmm. I used to read a lot of Suit Violet High. Um, those were cute. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> yeah. classic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I used to sneak some inappropriate romances and just like cover the covers with like <laughs> papers. So my mother wouldn't <laughs> see the highly romantic um, illustrations. Yeah, secrets so, out now. <laughs> I used to do that a lot. She had no idea. So I read a lot of romance growing up. We got a little romance in this book. So we we are taking you back to that place. This book has an interesting history. Do you know anything about the publishing history of this book? 
Yes, I know it was initially published, I believe, in 1992, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. 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 So it was published in 1992, and then it republished in 2001, and it reissued in 2021. So it's kind of having a second life this past year or so. Yeah, I think the story is just really aging well. It's still incredibly relevant, and I I love that it was republished and it was put on my radar. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have found it. Yeah, and I'm grateful that you put it on my radar because I don't know that I would have found it. But the story about how it got back out into the world is also kind of interesting. So there's a really great article on Forbes.com about the journey of this book being republished in 2021, and I'll link that in the show notes. But as far as I understand it, the author actually didn't know for a while that the book had gone out of print since its 2001 reprinting because her editor had actually left the publisher. So she wasn't like working directly with the original publisher anymore. And she didn't really think about it. But then she got a letter from a Korean adoptee camp who actually wanted to buy like a bulk order of them. And she tried to get in touch with the publisher. And they're like, oh, the book's out of print. And that was very upsetting. She really didn't know that that had happened. She really wanted it to come back out. And she signed with a new agency in 2013. And at that point, her new agent decided to get really proactive about finding a new home for the books that'll be back in the marketplace. And something actually happened thanks to BuzzFeed. So in 2018, Mm -hmm. Finding My Voice was included in a list titled 15 YA books from the 80s and 90s that have stood the test of time. And that got the ball rolling again. Um, An acquiring editor at Soho Teen started getting the gears going. um, And in 2021, it came back out there. And I, I agree with you. I think the themes are really universal. And if anything, more relevant and timely now than ever. Agreed. Yeah, that's a very interesting process. I guess some things just never end. If there's a market for them, an audience, I feel like they can just come back to life. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I I can't imagine as an author, like finding out from somebody else that your book had gone out of print. And I just have so much respect for for this author for being like, no, we need to find a way to get this book back out there. I found a lot of really interesting quotes from her as I was researching for this interview that I'll I'll share as we talk. But she talks a lot about how she didn't necessarily set out to write a book, quote, about racism. Um, She just wanted to write a book about growing up in the Midwest and what that experience was like for her. She said to NBC News, I kind of wrote this book for my bullies. A lot of them would make stupid racist jokes and then say, oh, I'm just kidding when I get upset. I wanted them to feel what that felt like. But she also talks about how like this wasn't necessarily about identity. It wasn't about racism. It just reflects her experience, which unfortunately included a lot of racism and actually a lot of physical violence as well. So she was able to share her own experiences, although it's not directly autobiographical. And of course, it becomes a reflection on identity that I think we need now in 2021 as much as ever. Yeah, I think it's a good point that I can relate to. I feel like as an author of color, when I write a book, I'm not, I don't set out to do anything specific. I just write my experiences and people get to see that there are themes within the experiences that are important. For example, with this book, she was just telling her story, which I thought she did incredibly well. We see Ellen, the character, just going through everyday life. And then we see how these racists in school, wherever she goes, just come and interrupts her happiness or anything like that. I just feel like that's a very, that's something I I heavily relate to. That's fascinating. I think so often now, like whether it's somebody, and I think about this even as like a podcaster and, and I'm getting my MFA right now. So I'm an aspiring author myself. I think sometimes we as creators feel this, this sense that we need to have 
going into whatever we're working on, like a theme, like there needs to be a moral or a message. And I think often just by telling a good story, you share the important message. And, and sometimes by letting the story come more naturally, like that's where the meaning becomes even deeper. Agreed. I feel like it's very natural. It's not something you forced. And um, I got that natural sense while reading this book. Yes. One other kind of quick note about like the publishing journey of this book before we actually start talking about the story is that the author sent it to 22 publishers initially in the early 90s when she was trying to get it published for the first time. It was her first book and they all said no. One rejection, and this is so awful, said something to the effect of like, oh, well, we actually already are publishing a book set in Cambodia this year, so this isn't going to work. And it was written by a white woman. So that was the reason that they gave her for not being able to publish this book, which is a completely different story, not that it should matter. And not only that, that book set in Cambodia was written by a white author. Wow. I can imagine how hard it must have been as a person of color trying to get published back then. Things have changed incredibly in recent years within the publishing industry. So I can't really imagine how difficult it would have been for her to get her book published. Yeah, I'm sure it was very difficult. And it, it's worth noting as well that none of the text um, of Finding My Voice was updated for this this new edition in 2021. There's a new foreword that they added, but the story itself, the language is all the same. She talked about in an interview with the New York Times that she considered updating certain parts of the book. In particular, the word oriental is used throughout. And apparently, Marie Lee considered switching that, but she decided that she wanted to keep it. And so that was a conscious decision, which I found interesting because as I was reading it, I, I actually didn't know when I was reading it that it had been republished. And so when I came across that word again and again, I was like, oh, this does feel very 90s. And I like that she kept that in. The book was written in the 90s, even though it's still very relevant. But I personally would want people to know the initial setting, the initial time this book was written, and even educate people on slurs. While reading the book, I saw a few words that I didn't know were slurs. So I looked them up and I discovered that they were. And just knowing that, I felt like that was educational. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought about it that way, but that that is a good point. So let's get into the story. Um, this is a pretty small book. I read it in a matter of a few hours, and it captures an entire school year in the life of Ellen, who's a high school senior. What were your first impressions of Ellen, Jane? Did you relate to her? Did she remind you of yourself when you were in high school? I guess to some extent, being an immigrant, but also the child of an immigrant, just that expectation, I definitely, <laughs> that was very familiar to me. But I really loved how Ellen was just going about her day. She was just doing gymnastics, trying to look, she, she put a lot of effort into her appearance, especially in the first chapter, we saw that. I thought that was interesting. I felt like she was trying to overcompensate because she felt people wouldn't like her because of her difference, her ethnicity. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I noted that first chapter as well. Really, the entire first chapter is about her kind of trying to satisfy like the beauty standards of the time. She talks about what she's learned from Seventeen Magazine, about eye makeup and what she wants to wear. I think so much of her interest in being like, quote, normal um, is tied up in her tension with her older sister, Michelle, yeah. um, who is like the smartest girl ever and is at Harvard. She's 
just brilliant. The sense that I got from Ellen is that she wants to figure out how to kind of like stand apart from her parents' expectations of her just being like the next Michelle by showing up at school in a different way. So it feels as though Michelle like didn't care so much about her appearance. Those things weren't important to her. Having a social life wasn't a priority for her. And so while Ellen is on one hand trying to live up to her parents' expectations by following in Michelle's footsteps, she's also trying to forge a new path for herself by being interested in some of the things that her older sister didn't care so much about when she was in high school. Yeah. And I think at some point, I can't remember if I'm wrong. I think she said when she was having a conversation with her parents, she told her father, I'm not Michelle. Am I mistaken? Yes. Yeah, that happened. No, she <laughs> says that. Yeah, okay. she says that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. The family dynamic was really interesting. So Ellen, when we meet her, is the only child of the family left at home. Michelle is in Boston, in Cambridge, attending Harvard. And Ellen is at home with her parents, both of whom were born in Korea and moved to the US. She doesn't know very much about what her parents' lives were like before they moved to America. They don't talk about it. She stumbles upon some information about their life before they immigrated while she's kind of like snooping around her father's office. But for the most part, what she knows about them is her dad's a doctor, her mom's their mom, and they both really are pushing her to go to Harvard. Can you relate at all to like having academic pressure? Yeah, I feel like a lot of immigrants or children of immigrants might have this experience of having this expectation to meet, you know, to make your parents proud because of where they've come from and what they've given up. And you just want to show them that it wasn't for nothing. And so that expectation, that burden is put on you. And while you're dealing with that, you're trying to figure out what you want to do. The two most highly approved occupations are doctor or or lawyer. So you're like, are these my only options? Is there something else? What do I personally want with the rest of my life? So I could definitely relate to that. Yeah. And and I really felt for Ellen because it's clear that she's smart, but she doesn't only want to be smart. Like she embraces the fact that she gets good grades and she's happy to live up to her parents' expectations to an extent, but I think she's like itching to get out. And the part that I could relate to is being a people pleaser. And I think the title of the book very much speaks to this idea that like a big part of Ellen's journey is figuring out how to at the same time, make her parents happy and make herself happy. And a lot of that is about finding your voice and knowing when you want to speak up and speak out for the things that are important to you. I think that as somebody who has a tendency to people please and to sometimes like make other people happy before I make myself happy, a lot of it comes down to figuring out which battles you want to fight and when you do want to use your voice. Because if you want to make people happy, like there, it's just not in your DNA to be like, screw it, I'm going to do what I want. Like, that's just, that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. And I don't think it comes naturally to Ellen. I think there's this new, like, kind of influencer speak in 2021 that's all about, like, following your bliss and doing what you want. And that's just not, like, a practical, natural thing for a lot of people. I don't think it's a practical, natural thing for Ellen. She wants to make her parents proud. She understands that they've made a lot of sacrifices for her. So I think her journey is about deciding when she wants to use her voice, when she wants to speak out, And when she would prefer to just kind of like go with the flow and do what her parents want her to do. So that's something that I related to. It's something that resonates with me even now as an adult. Yeah. And I like that you said she discovers when she wants to use her voice. Because I would think that if someone was to see this title and read this book, they would expect her to just come to a point where she's talking too much or just doing too much to get her point across and her views across. But she Mm -hmm. does truly 
decide when, like even though she's bullied a lot throughout the book, she comes to a point where she decides to stand up for herself. At the end of the book, she decides if she wants to go forward and press charges on her her attackers so she makes that decision of when she wants to stand up for herself and even when she was going to school at the end when her parents told her to stay home she decided that she wants to go to university so that was her speaking up for herself too yeah it's almost like she's simultaneously figuring out how to stand up for herself both out at school and out in the world and how to stand up for herself at home and those are obviously like two very different conversations with much different stakes but it's almost like she has to figure both out at the same time. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what she's experiencing at school. I wanted to share a quote that I found on a website called Korean Quarterly, and I'll include a link to this article in the show notes for this episode, along with a lot of other resources. But this article says, though Ellen may be a quiet girl, this is not the story about a silent victim of racism. Lee does not oversimplify this story by making it only about awful racists and their invisible targets. She also challenges her readers to examine the role of bystanders. Are they pretending not to hear? Why did no one speak up for Ellen on the bus on the first day of school? Why does her gymnastics coach excuse the racist comments from her teammates, advising her not to take it so personally? What is the responsibility of bystanders? So I think so much of Ellen's like experiences at school and, and her journey, I feel like I keep using the word journey, but she is on a journey, her journey to figure out when she wants to speak out. A lot of it is about sort of like, watching how these bystanders behave and understanding like who's responsible in these situations, what her responsibility is, what her friend's responsibility is. And at the end of the day, like the fact that these racist comments that people are making are the responsibility of the people who are making them, not hers. And we start to see this happening on the very first day of school. It's, I think it's the first chapter. If not, it's very soon into the second chapter. But we immediately see Ellen on the receiving end of some racist slurs on the school bus by a cool guy. I kind of lost track of the names of all of the cool guys. I know Mike and Tomper are like the nice cool guys. I want to say Troy or Chad. <laughs> That sounds right. I mean, when in doubt, it's probably a Troy <laughs> or a Chad. I'm looking through my notes and I can't even like, I can't remember what that guy's name was, but who cares because he sucks. He said a really <laughs> mean word to her that I'm not going to repeat here. Yeah. But within pages, we see that Ellen is no stranger to receiving racial slurs. Uh, she lives in a small town in the Midwest. It seems like there are not other people around who look like her. And at first, she kind of like she's bothered by it, but she doesn't seem to think that it's her place to say anything. Did it surprise you to see that come up so quickly in the book? I wasn't expecting it to be like in your face right here, right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. It was like, oh, OK, here we are. Yeah. Exactly. And you know what? I thought that was really well done because I remember there's a book called, I think, Aisha at Last. And the author, there's a, there's a scene where the two main characters, I believe love interest, are going on a walk. It's a regular day, going for a nice walk. And something, something happens. Someone attacks them and uses racial slurs because they're Muslim. And the author... I think it was her who said something in an interview that she wanted it to be sudden. She wanted it to be like an everyday situation and it to just happen suddenly because you never know when it's going to happen. It's never planned. You never expect it. So I thought Ellen's um, situation was very realistic because she can't really predict when it's going to happen. She might be in a good mood that day. She might not be. But then someone comes randomly and just completely ruins her day. 
I think that's very well said. I think the other thing that I noticed is because Marie Lee's writing style is so like clean and precise, like her prose is very sort of to the point. The fact that these words that we know are so hurtful and so racist kind of like pop up out of them. I don't know. There's just something about the way they settle into her particular style of writing that I found very striking. Agreed. They jump off the page um, exactly. in an even more offensive way than mm-hmm. it hit me. And I barely knew Ellen. We were pages in and I immediately was like, okay, Ellen, we have to deal with this. How are we going to address the situation? But at first she's just kind of like, she talks to her friends about it. Her friend Jesse is frustrated because I think Jesse really wants her to stand up for herself sooner. But Ellen really just wants to fit in. She wants to fly under the radar. She knows that her number one responsibility this year is to meet her parents' goals for her and get into Harvard. So she just kind of has to like keep her head down, work hard in school. And I did relate to her academic pressure a little bit, not necessarily because my parents put it on me, but because I just felt a lot of pressure senior year. Like I related to her so much in this feeling of like showing up for that first day of senior year and being like, okay, this is my time. I have to do it. And I can't imagine being in that mindset. And then the first day on the school bus being on the receiving end of that kind of language, I just can't even, I can't even imagine it. And unfortunately, this is an experience that's all too real for so many people. Yeah, unfortunately. So I think that I want to talk about Tomper, aka Tom. I've never heard the name Tomper before. Have you? Never. I I didn't know what to think of it, but I'm glad it was shortened to Tom because (laughs) I was having a hard time digesting that name. Yeah, that was like the only kind of part of the book that threw me off because I was like, am I supposed to be reading into this name? We're led to believe that Tomper is just like a nice white guy at school. And I was like, I feel like Tomper makes you wonder, is there something else I need to know about him? But no, (laughs) his name's Tomper. He goes by Tom. (laughs) And I was a little suspicious. Me too. (laughs) So he starts being nice to Ellen, like the first day of school. She notices that he's more friendly than he usually is to her. They're making conversation in classes. And then over the course of the year, we watch their relationship develop. And I did not know how to feel. Like there were times when I actually disliked him. Like he's playing Ellen against this other girl, Marsha, who is actually the worst. She's Mm -hmm. on the gymnastics team and she's probably the most racist character other than that boy, Chad slash Troy slash we don't remember what his name is. I think it's Brad. (laughs) Brad. Oh, it might be Brad too. So Brad and Marsha are the worst. (laughs) And Tomper is at various points, like showing more interest in Marsha than he is in Ellen. Like it's very confusing. And really all the way up until the end of the book, I didn't trust him. I thought he had some ulterior motives. Mm-hmm. Me too. But I also think his character was really well done. I feel like he was just trying to leave, live up to certain expectations of his friends, like you know, social mm-hmm. norms that were fabricated. And he didn't know how to break away from that to do what he really wanted to do. So I think that's pretty realistic. Like teenagers can be easily influenced by their friends, the popular crowds wanting to fit in. And he he didn't want to stand out for the wrong reason. So he just thought he would fall in line and just not date Ellen. Yeah, and I I do like the fact that Ellen had like a very low tolerance for his nonsense. Me too. Love that. She's shy, but she also does not 
stand for bad behavior. Mm -hmm. At one point, she says to him, Tomper, I really like you, but I think you have to make up your mind about things. You can't just come over here out of the blue and expect me to be glad you want to kiss me. Mm -hmm. And I was like clapping, a standing ovation, because I never would have been able to say that to a boy when I was in high school. And I just love that she was so clear. She knew exactly what she wanted to say, and she was not going to be intimidated by tom's popularity or by marsha's popularity yeah. she's like i don't care who's cooler like this is what i expect mm-hmm. i love that too i was definitely sharing and i thought she was done with him because i was also very suspicious of tom and i kept expecting a carry moment to happen <laughs> yes yeah so that was just on my mind the entire time he really had to prove himself to me Yeah, every time we would see him talking to a friend, like a fellow cool guy, I was anticipating that Ellen would overhear him like saying something along the lines of like, oh, like you dared me to do this or see, I told you I would try dating her. And as we have this conversation, it occurs to me that this is something that we've been conditioned to expect in pop culture. Like I hadn't really thought about this before, but now that we're talking about it, I realized that it's like so dark and so messed up that like movies and TV and books to an extent too have taught us that a boy like Tomper in many cases would not necessarily be interested in a girl like Ellen for genuine reasons. You're so right. And I think in the real world, yeah, it's not crazy because like I think in the real world it does happen. I don't think kids are always as mean in the real world as we see them portrayed on screens how messed up is it that you and I both read this book and we know how cool Ellen is. We see that she has so much going for her. Tom, while cool, seems to be like a perfectly nice, straightforward person. And why is it that you and I both read this book and we were like, there's no way he's actually dating her for the right reasons. That's, that is the fault of the media. Yeah. Let's blame it on Hollywood. Cause if I think of all the teen movies where a girl is I don't know, not cool enough, wears glasses. I'm thinking of um, that movie, She's All That. And yeah, I thought about that too. <laughs> a guy's dare to like go out with her. Right. This is a, con- a consistent storyline, especially in teen movies. So we're not supposed to expect the best from the jock, the popular guy. That's not cool. Right. And so we, we have certain expectations of the jock, the popular guy. We have certain expectations of a quote like Brainiac, like Ellen. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how it plays out in real life. Life is so much more nuanced than that. And as I came to the end of the book and I saw that Ellen and Tom had something of a happy ending, I was sort of frustrated with myself that I spent so much of my time with this story waiting for him to say something mean to her. Like that, yeah. I should have just enjoyed their love story. <laughs> But I kind of think the author kind of did it on purpose because there were two occasions where he was talking to Brad and he was like, do you like this? Why are you dating her? Why are you talking to her? And he never, ever said, I like her. He just said, that's my business or yeah. So she she was playing with us, I feel. (laughs) Okay. So it wasn't just me. I did feel like I was like, I was like, I feel like I'm being played here, which was very smart on her part. But that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that before. I'm glad we I'm glad we had that conversation. Because (laughs) in hindsight, I'm like, it is Yeah, let's blame Hollywood. This is fully Hollywood's fault. For sure. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about Ellen's love of gymnastics and how gymnastics is like an outlet for her um, and how it becomes very complicated, largely because her coach is 
a bystander and a lot of racist behavior going on with Marsha, who is kind of like the star of the team. Ellen expects to be competing at the varsity level because she's a senior and she's been on the team for the last three years. And she shows up to the first practice and is told that she's going to be JV, which must be very frustrating to begin with. And then she is subjected to so much terrible behavior on Marsha's part. And the coach does absolutely nothing, which when you think about the fact that gymnastics is supposed to be Ellen's outlet from all of the stress that she's feeling at home and at school, like she is willing to risk a lot. She's willing to risk a lot of her parents' like judgments just to be able to compete with gymnastics because they don't really want her to do it at all. And yet she shows up to practice day after day and is only subjected to like more terrible behavior. It's just this really icky cycle. And I love to see that she was continuing to show up, even though it was hard. But I also just wanted her to tell the coach off. Me too. And also, I feel so bad for the girl. Her parents never came to her meet. Yeah. Like, she was just going through a lot. And yes, gymnastics was her outlet. I feel like she really loved that. But she never got to really enjoy it because of the bullying and the fact that her coach just brushed off all those comments, which she clearly heard, but she just didn't care. Yeah. And there was some explicit, like, victim blaming that happened, too. Yeah. Because Ellen, like, even though she's she's set up to compete at the JV level, she ends up going to a few varsity meets and she thinks that she's going to get a varsity letter when it comes time for that big ceremony at the end of the season. And she's not given that letter. And it's really disappointing for her. It's what she's gone for her whole high school journey. And I actually really have related to this because as somebody who often felt, I often felt like being smart and being good at school was like the only thing about me in high school. And it was really exciting to me when I found things that I was good at like outside of the classroom and it always was validating to me when other people saw that I was good at things outside of the classroom. Um, And it's a shame that we put that pressure on ourselves as teenagers, but I do think it's important to kids to be seen in a variety of ways. There's a lot of reflections on popularity in the book that I thought were interesting, but you can tell that Ellen just wants to be seen for something other than her grades. And she's like, okay, great. I'm ready to get my varsity letter. I'm going to be more than just the smart kid. She's not given a letter and she gets up the confidence to go talk to the coach. And she ends up having like a pretty frank conversation with the coach about Marsha's racist comments. And the coach says something about how like, oh, well, you shouldn't let her get to you. That's your fault for letting her throw you off your game. Yeah, that sucks. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's textbook victim blaming. I know that there's a lot of debate about like the proper way to use the word gaslighting. I never know if we're using it too lightly, but I do think that to the extent that the coach is basically like putting this whole conversation on Ellen and like blaming it on her and switching the whole tone around, like there is a little bit of gaslighting going on here. Um, and from an adult at the school. Yeah, exactly. A lot of adults at the school seem just like they just didn't care about her feelings that they didn't care that those slurs hurt like she had another teacher who made some comments in class I recall in one in one scene and he just kind of he said something about you people I can't remember the exact words yeah yeah but I don't feel like it really resonated with them that these are words and these are human beings being affected by these words they just didn't care yeah I think it was that teacher or maybe there was another one I can't even remember if if there were two teachers, but there were a lot of microaggressions being thrown around Mm -hmm. um, from the teachers, like commenting, as you said, using phrases like you people. I think there was another teacher who was talking about how like Ellen should be good at math and kind of like being like surprised that she wasn't doing well in math. And 
it just seems like there's like a very high tolerance in this school, or at least like a lack of understanding of racism and how comments like that are extremely upsetting and wrong. Yeah. I feel like because she's she, she's the only person of color in the town. I, I don't think there are any like black students in this town because if I'm not mistaken, none were described. Mm-hmm. Some professor, I think at Yale or Harvard, described the town as very like blonde hair, blue eyes kind of the population is just based off of that. So I think she was the only person of color there. And people just didn't really care about interacting with her in a positive way. Well, I think that there's a lot of like colorblindness, like philosophy happening in this town is my sense that like you said, like she's the only person of color. And at this point in time, I would imagine because this was happening a lot in the 90s all over the place that the sort of party line is like, well, we don't see color. Yeah. So we'll just like pretend that it's not an issue and that mm-hmm. an individual's background like doesn't deserve to be respected, that it's not something that we need to like pretend doesn't exist. And often when you have that sort of an approach to race, I think that like people do see color, but in all of the wrong, cruel, racist ways, right? Like it's it's never it's never that people aren't acknowledging it. It's just that it's being brushed under the carpet and also being criticized. Yeah. And it seems to me like that's what's happening in this community and that it's allowed by these popular kids in particular. Yeah. You mentioned earlier on this whole thing that happens near the end where Ellen decides not to press charges for Marsha. And I think we should get into that a little bit more. There are a few other storylines that I want to make sure we get to before we start to wrap up. But because we're talking about some of the abuse that Ellen is dealing with at the hands of these popular students, we certainly have to close the loop with Marsha and talk about what happens at the end of the book with Marsha because Ellen gets fed up. She is tired of dealing with Marsha's comments. And she says, you are so ignorant. You are a racist idiot. And I had another moment like early on in the book when she was telling Tom off where I was like, yes, you're standing up for yourself. But Marsha attacks her physically, which actually is not something that I have seen in a lot of books like for this age group. As hard as it is to read, I'm so impressed by the fact that that the author was willing to go there. And I think in 2021, as we unfortunately have seen such a rise in hate crimes against Asian American folks, it's important that people see this on the page and see that it's a real thing. Because if they're not paying attention to it in the real world, like it needs to be showing up in the in the pop culture that people consume. Mm-hmm. This happens to people. And as I mentioned earlier, the author Marie Lee talks about the fact that this happened to her when she was growing up. <sighs> that was a hard... Hard scene to read. I feel like it's easy to distance yourself from it when you hear about it in the news to some extent, but then you're confronted by it in this book in a way that I didn't expect because I really didn't expect things to escalate Mm -hmm. the way they did. I didn't either. Yeah. And it was just, it felt suddenly so personal than it ever had before because when you read a book, it's so much more personal than I would say watching a movie. You connect with these characters, you know their inner thoughts. So this attack felt so personal and it really hit me emotionally because I didn't see it coming and it was just so brutal. It was a very emotional scene. I I cried a little bit. I think a lot actually. Yeah, it surprised me too. And I think part of what was surprising about it was just the way it was written. It's so quick. Yeah. And then Ellen wakes up in the hospital. Like it's very fast. And I almost had to reread it a couple of times just because I was not expecting it. And then to see her 
brought down that way physically. And I think too, like the the switch and how how proud and happy I was for her about standing up mm-hmm. to Marsha. And then it so quickly shifts. I think that's unfortunately the reality of what happens in these situations a lot because I and I don't know that we always see that. Like because the romantic version of that scene, right, is that Ellen stands up to Marsha, Marsha backs down, and Ellen immediately is like triumphant and everybody like gives her a round of applause and it's yeah. like, we're so sorry. We were wrong all along. And that's what we see. Disney. That's a more of a Disney time. version. Right. Yeah. That's the Disney version. But I think what we've learned from, unfortunately, like watching life and current events unfold around us in the last 18 months, especially, is that that's often not what actually happens in real life. And so the fact that Marie Lee was like willing to be honest about that is big. Yeah, Absolutely. I bet it wasn't easy for her to be, she, you said that she experienced something similar growing up. So I can't imagine writing that scene was easy at all for her. She probably had to revisit some very painful memories in order to write that. Yeah, I'm sure she did. Um, yeah, she talks in a lot of interviews about how, unfortunately, violence was a part of her childhood. So I'm sure it was very painful. And you mentioned this earlier again, but Ellen is is given the opportunity to press charges against Marsha. And I pulled out a few lines from this section of the book, Ellen thinks to herself, I try to picture Marsha behind bars. After all this, I realize I don't hate her. I just feel strangely depressed. I think I can speak for myself now, but that doesn't mean that racist people are going to go away. There will probably always be people like Marsha or Brad, you're right, his name's Brad, (laughs) who won't like me without ever knowing who exactly I am. Mm Which is, that's I'm just like letting it sink in again as I speak it out loud. And she ultimately decides right after having that moment of reflection that she's not going to press charges, despite the fact that Marsha has quite literally assaulted her and there were witnesses and it was a very real dangerous situation that happened. And I found myself wondering if this book had been written more recently. Do you think the author might have chosen to have her press charges? I was thinking about this question quite a bit and and wondering how it might play out differently now. I don't know. I don't know if that's a decision she made because of the time in which she lived, because of what would have happened in that time, or if that's a decision she made based on the character and deciding that it wouldn't change anything. I feel like maybe writing it now, I don't think she would have written it otherwise. I feel the point of that is that Marsha going to jail won't change her mind. She's going to need more than being behind bars to see that what she did was absolutely disgusting. And it's not going to change so many other people's mind. Just that one act of putting one person in jail, is, it's not going to change anything. It has to be more. And it's so sad because she can be angry. She can maybe choose to go through the route of getting a lawyer and going to court and going through all that trauma again. But what does it really do but put one person in in jail? What does it accomplish? I think that's what she was trying to do, the author. I think that's true. I also guess there's something to be said about the fact that like at this moment, Ellen is on the verge of going away to college anyway, and Marsha seems to not really be going anywhere. I think she failed like the exam she had to take to get into dental hygiene school or something. And so she's kind of going to be stuck where she is. Mm -hmm. So maybe we're also meant to just walk away knowing that Ellen's going to get to go start a new life on the East Coast, and she gets to leave all of this behind. Yeah. I think also Marsha was really... Because you know what confused me? Before that scene when Marsha 
attacked, assaulted Ellen, there was another party scene where she was kind of cool with her. Yeah. And she was like, hey, how are you doing? And I was like, well, this is a switch. But I let it go. I thought, okay, maybe she came to her senses or something. And then a few chapters later, there's this assault scene. So I was just really taken aback. Like, where did this come from? Well, I know where it came from, but it wasn't there when she saw her previously. So even more reason to be shocked by that scene. Yeah, I think I thought the reason that she was being nicer to her at that other party scene was because of Tom. I thought that maybe Marsha was like trying to show Tom that like she was kind of above the drama and like, look how nice I can be. I thought that there was something in that dynamic where maybe she was just kind of being fake or like trying really hard to be nice. It To me, it felt a little bit like there was some recognition that Tomper was involved. And so she was changing her normal behavior for that reason. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I really don't know the extent of which Tomper was involved in people not being racist or mean to Ellen. I feel like he did some things that we are so unaware of. Like in the scene at the end with the friends in the car, mm. his other friend who I can't I can't remember his name. Mike. Mike. They're in the car watching the movie and he mentions something around Tomper saying something to Brad, but we don't know what it is. I don't know what what Tomper did. I wish I knew. I wish I knew what he said in defense of her. There's a lot happening off the page there. And I thought the other thing that was interesting there was that Mike, who is now dating Jesse, Ellen's friend, is like, oh, I, you know, it took Tomper a little bit longer to stand mm-hmm. up to Brad. Yeah. Which I kind of wanted more there. I was like, Mike, tell me more. Like, <laughs> how much longer? <laughs> how long did we have to wait to get Tomper on the right side of things? Because I was like, oh, suddenly Mike is looking pretty great. And I was curious that Ellen didn't like push for more information there. Yeah. Like, I wanted to know. I want to know so bad because I didn't really, I wasn't into Mike either because he was a bystander. Yes. And all of a sudden, he's dating Ellen's friend, and he's looking like a nice guy. I just want to know how. How did this happen? Yeah, I I love the fact that this book is so compact and gives us so much in a little package. Mm -hmm. But there were a couple, that was probably one of the moments where I I was like, come on, tell me a little bit more, (laughs) because I feel kind of mad at Tomper again. Like, I'd gotten to a place with Tomper where I felt like he was a good guy. I'd realized he didn't have ulterior motives. They've been dating for a long time. But then Mike drops this information on us, and I was like, hold on. Yeah. Why did it take him a long time? So that was interesting. I agree with you. I guess we'll never know. We'll never know. Um, One other dynamic that I wanted to make sure we touch on before we start to wrap things up is the way that Ellen wraps things up with her parents at the end of this book. Her dad begins to open up to her a bit more about his experience as an immigrant, which he hasn't done before. I pulled out a couple of his lines. He says, when you leave a country, it is like an animal caught in a trap that gnaws a limb off to free itself. You can't dwell on what you've lost if you want to survive. You have to go on with what you have. He also says, I always hoped it would be better for you and your sister. You have gotten to the best school, and I am sure you both will become fine doctors. And Ellen reflects, for the first time, it really hits home that mom and father left a whole different country behind to come here. The change must have been frightening, and they must have felt alone and strange when they first arrived. And Jane, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you related to parts of Ellen's experience in a family of immigrants. And I wonder if you might share a little bit about how you react to that part of the end of the book. Okay, I love that part. But 
before I get into it, I want to say that, like I said before, when someone reads this book and the title, they probably expect Helen, Ellen to come to her own um, decision and say, you know what, I'm not going to go to Harvard, father, because that's what mm. you wanted. And I want to be, I don't know, get into art. So just do something so drastically different from what her parents um, wanted for her. But she didn't do that. And I kind of like that. I, I think it gives it another dimension to this side of the story because she doesn't rebel against what her parents want, but she un comes to understand why they want it for her. I feel for the first time having that conversation with her father and seeing what they went through to come to America, make a life here and practice as a doctor. She understands why they want the best for her so much. And I think a lot of children of immigrants, they fail to realize that, that to leave another country, to come to another and make a new life is incredibly difficult. But then to do that amidst prejudice is a whole nother situation. And so I think she really realizes that. And I loved it, understanding her parents a lot more. Yeah, it, it felt like she was able to have some empathy for yeah. her dad because at the beginning of the book, she she made a comment about the fact that like she thinks her dad doesn't know about how hard it is out in the world for her. And in that conversation she has with him at the end, it's like he acknowledges it because he's also had his fair share of racism. He's experienced it himself, but it's not something he wants to talk about with her. And he's just hoping that it'll be better as things as time goes on. Yeah, I thought that was a good moment. Yeah, I was happy that they had like a nice conversation at the end and that in the end, her parents end up being really supportive of her choices. Yeah, they do. They really, they really do. I think they grew a little bit. Yeah, everybody grows. I think maybe Michelle doesn't grow, but you always, you always <laughs> need, you always need like a difficult older sister sometimes in a book. And I think Michelle is maybe going to grow the least of everybody in this family. But yeah. She's off at Harvard kicking butt and that's, that's good. I think she enjoys doing what she does too. So that's good for her. Yeah, she seems happy. She's yeah. not she's not sweating it. She doesn't worry too much about what's going on back home. So Jane, I'm wondering, I, I know you didn't read this book when you were a kid. So I guess I would love to hear more about how it maybe measured up to your expectations based on what you knew about it before you started reading. For some strange reason, I expected a lot of romance, like mm. really heavy on the romance. And I expected her to do, Father, I'm not going to go to Harvard. I want to get into arts. You know, that yeah. whole <laughs> dramatic, rebellious situation. But it didn't give me that. And I'm glad it didn't give me that because I expected it. I didn't expect the story to to hit so heavily with the themes of racism. And um, I thought it was a very, it was a very quick story, but it was packed with a lot and it was very powerful. And I didn't expect it to take the turn it did. Yeah, I think that's very well said. The word I would use is striking. Mm-hmm. A very striking read um, and it packs a punch in a short pretty short little package as I mentioned before other than finding my voice Jane what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners we're heading into the holiday season people are going to have hopefully some more time off to cozy up with a good book what should they be picking up okay I recently read Nicola Younes I love her <laughs> yes we love her yeah instructions for dancing heavy on the romance sad you know I love a romance that makes me cry it's okay if it's not a happily ever after I thought it was a very good book I love that um I also read a book called The Fastest Way to Fall by Denise Williams it's a contemporary romance and 
It gave me all the feels. I love the he the hero. He's just the best book boyfriend ever, and I still have a crush on him. You're still thinking about him after you finish? <laughs> I'm still thinking about him. So you know he really got under my skin. That was a great book. Yeah. So those are the two recommendations I have. And if our listeners are going to cozy up with anything over this holiday break, I think they also need to cozy up with your new book, The Sweetest Remedy, which I know has been out for a couple of months now. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Can you share a little bit more about it with us? Sure. So The Sweetest Remedy is a contemporary romance slash women's fiction. It's about a biracial woman who has never met She's never really had a relationship with the Nigerian part of her family. So her Nigerian father. And um, when she hears that her father has passed away, she's invited to Nigeria for the funeral. So she decides to go. And while there, she meets her siblings for the first time, who are basically like Nigerian royalty. And she meets um, a family friend who she ends up having romantic relationship with. And she learns a lot about her father and her culture and herself. And the story is filled with a lot of family drama but it's about, it's about self-love and family love and romantic love. And it's about finding yourself and defining the kind of person that you want to be. That sounds lovely and like the perfect read for the end of the year and anytime, really. I'm so excited for you that that's out in the world. And I'll make sure that our listeners have easy access to get a copy for themselves. Everybody, make sure you go check out The Sweetest Remedy and get yourself a copy. Maybe gift it to somebody you love this holiday season. Sounds like there's something for everybody there. Yep. <laughs> well, Jane, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to read this book. Thank you for, again, recommending it to me and getting it on our collective radar. I'm so happy I got to read it. Clearly, we both had a lot of thoughts about it, and I'm glad we had the chance to share them with our SSR community today. Thank you for having me. This was a very great conversation. I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.